Well, uh, compared to the church, they're numerically minuscule, but media magnets. The British Humanist Association have been in full force again this week, backed up by the New Atheist, Dawkins, and the like, to proclaim that there should be uh, less and less influence of religion over society, particularly in our schools after the uh, debacle in Durham with Ofsted. And um, what should we make of it? And what I want to do is take us through the passage today and think about uh, whether they've got a point. Because in our passage, is Jesus not shown to be dangerously unscientific, destructively intolerant, and judgmentally argumentative, and arrogant even? So let's uh, fasten our seatbelts, pray, and ask for God's wisdom about these things. Holy Spirit, we just ask for a cloud of your presence in this place now, that our minds and hearts may experience revelation and transformation that can only come from your power, revealing the Son who reveals the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, dangerously unscientific. I can remember a while ago a vicar coming to do an assembly at our school, and he had had a recent experience where he had tried to cross a road at a a red light, and uh, following him came a toddler into the road who was nearly run over. And uh, thereafter, he was obviously visibly shaken by this, and he resolved to only cross when the green man was flashing and he could hear the noise. But isn't it rather dangerously unscientific and precarious to teach people that if you go into a storm without a life jacket on, uh, without buoyancy aid, without a radio to radio for help for the lifeguard, that all you can do is rebuke the wind and the waves (laughs) and we will be okay. Jesus walks across the road, if you like, inviting us to follow and be in trouble. And of course, some uh, believers have got in trouble with this. There's a whole cult in America who will um, grasp live poisonous snakes to see whether they will be okay. Because in a sort of an additional uh, annex to Mark's gospel, it says, if you touch a snake, you will be okay. It was probably a reference to how Paul was in Acts, if you're interested. But isn't it dangerously unscientific to think that someone can have control over the forces of nature and uh, perilous even to try and follow someone like that. Destructively intolerant. Jesus comes to two people whose society has dealt with according to their personal preferences. They've put them away in a nice home, sort of care in the community, slightly outside the community, to be honest. Uh, and they are you know, dealt with. He comes to them. He doesn't ask their opinion. He doesn't ask their advice. He just imposes himself upon them. And they are healed. But in his intolerance of their existing situation, he then goes on to um, enable the demons that have left them to go into pigs, thus destroying the economy of another uh, local people group uh, that wasn't Jewish. Destructively intolerant, putting these people's lives ahead of the economy. And finally, judgmentally arrogant. A man comes to him with an obvious condition. 
an obvious need. He's paralyzed. He's been paralyzed for a long time. He's got a clear and present need. And Jesus has one look at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, how arrogant is that? To look at this poor sick man and assume that you have the right to say anything about his inner condition when he's faced so much in his life. To assume that you have a right to judge him in that way. To say that he has been a sinner in some way. And possibly even leave it open to suggestion that his condition may have been a result of sin. So maybe the BHA have got a point. This is not the sort of person that we want putting in our assemblies and in our classrooms, is it? Is a dangerous person. How are we to assess these things? Well, let's look through the stories one by one and think about it for ourselves. In our first story, Jesus is in a boat in a storm. You notice what he's doing? He's sleeping. What an extraordinary character that he can sleep in a storm. I don't know how many of us today would say we're facing storms in our life, in our personal circumstances. This guy's sleeping in a storm. Actually, it's a bit annoying, isn't it? His friends who are in a boat with him are getting increasingly anxious. In one gospel, it says, don't you care about us? Don't you care that we're going to drown? And there he is, snoring away. Or maybe a perfect man doesn't snore, ladies. What do you think? (laughs) Snoring away. And his disciples say, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. He stands up and rebukes their lack of faith. Notice how in your face he is again. He doesn't say, oh, sorry about that. I'm sorry I was snoozing. Um, I just had a lapse of concentration for a moment. Of course I'll come to your rescue. Forgive me for leaving you there in a bit of a panic for a moment. I'm back and in control now. Not at all. He says, why haven't you got enough faith? Why are you afraid? And then in a word, he just says, be still. And the winds and the waves calm down. Who is this? What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He's upsetting all known scientific phenomena. The chances are that this sort of rapid storm in in the Lake of Galilee occurs because of seismic activities under the ground. Um, uh, You know, platonic activities. And he says, be still, and it's still. There's once a scientist um, who has a conversation with God, and he says, science has come an awful long way over the last few millennia, and we're at the point, God, where we can create life for ourselves. Let's have a competition, because frankly, some of the life you've created seems a bit substandard to me. (laughs) And and, uh, so God says, okay, let's have a competition. And the scientist goes off to his laboratory to start preparing his cloned human being. And God says, well, hang on a sec, where are you going? You've got to get your own dust. (laughs) You've got to get your own dust. The point being that the scientists can only tweak what God has already made for them. (laughs) Only God creates ex nihilio, out of nothing. And here Jesus is revealing himself not under the laws of science, but over the laws of science. He's not saying, judge me by the rules of science. He's saying, I surpass the law of science. Our second case, two demon-possessed men. Let's look at what happens to them. They are attacked by something in, inner, in their inner lives that is giving them absolute turmoil. How, how 
drastic was the thing that was attacking them? Well, we know it was so drastic, it meant that they were kept outside of the camp. They were kept actually in a tomb by the people in the community. That's all they could do with them. In one gospel, it says that they were shackled. They were shackled there because people didn't know how to deal with them. How many folk are there like that in our community today? Suffering absolute turmoil and anguish. And whatever it is inside them speaks to the Christ and says, have you come to torture us? Whatever's inside them recognizes something in Jesus and says, I don't like the goodness I see. You know what happens when light walks into darkness? It exposes everything all of a sudden. It's that squinting when you've been having a nice nap on a Sunday afternoon after a long sermon, a couple of glasses of wine, it's dark in the room, and someone comes in and pulls open the curtains, puts the light on, and you're sort of in agony for a second. Ah, why is this light here now? And they say, what what are you going to do to us? Whatever it is that is inside these two men, is so awful that when it's taken out from them and put into some unsuspecting animals, that entire troop of animals run away in distress and dismay uh, down what is a sort of a shadow cliff, a, a steep bank, it says here, into the water and died. That's what was troubling these two men, enough to, to destroy a herd of creatures. And Jesus brings restoration to them. In Mark's gospel, it it tells of how one of these guys is reinstated and wants to follow Jesus as his disciple afterwards. But what happens? The whole town goes to meet Jesus and they see him. They plead with him to leave their region. You see, he's prioritized people over the economy. He's prioritized the needs of these two people over the needs of the many. He's prioritized their lives that they might have utter freedom. He has been intolerant of their illness and intolerant of the prevailing culture. There's not much about Jesus that is tolerant in the Gospels, is there? David Cameron at the moment is um, flailing around trying to find a definition of what it means to be British. Have you seen that in the news? And every time he tries, people sort of pull back and say, well, where did you get that from? What's your source document for saying what it means to be British? Isn't this something that can be for everyone as well? One of the words that, particularly since Mr. Blair, has been prevalent as allegedly a British virtue is tolerance. Uh, It's been said by Edmund Burke that toleration is good for all or it's good for none. But also there's a limit at which forbearance ceases to be a virtue. Uh, Frank Moore Colby in his, his essays back in 1926 said this, persecution was at least a sign of personal interest. Tolerance is composed of nine parts of apathy to one part of brotherly love. <laughs> nine parts of apathy to one part of brotherly love. Because you know that if I came to Christine and said, Christine, I tolerate you. <laughs> it's not exactly life-affirming, is it? I tolerate you. In other words, I'm going to blatantly ignore you, allow you to get on with what you're doing, because it doesn't impact me too much. But I'm not going to go anywhere in terms of crossing a bridge to understanding you, to knowing why you are who you are, and to loving you and embracing you. 
if tolerance is supposed to be a British virtue, well, it ain't good enough. (laughs) And let's not define ourselves as British. It's not that you should be anti-tolerant, but Jesus does something that surpasses toleration extraordinarily. He does a sacrificial love for these two guys. He sacrificially loves them so much that he doesn't allow them to stay in their condition. And he doesn't care for what people will think of him in doing so. He's driven away by this community because he hasn't tolerated the status quo. He's brought transformation through agape love. And Christians always are called to agape love rather than the horrific non-virtue of alleged toleration. What's the fruit of Jesus' intolerance? Transformation and love. But for many, they stand against him. Our final story then. We see Jesus healing the paralytic. uh, Judgmentally arrogant, perhaps. He looks at this man and he says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. I mean, how dare he? How dare he, this able-bodied 31-year-old man, looking at this guy lying on a stretcher, who's come to him for help for the very thing that Jesus has shown time and time again he's able to do, which is to heal people physically. How dare he look at him and say, your sins are forgiven? What an arrogant, judgmental thing to say. Unless what we deeply need is judgment. And that's what we deeply need is judgment. 1 Corinthians 13, the famous passage on love, tells the story of what it will be like in heaven. And it says, then I will be fully known, even as I fully know. Then I will be fully known, even as I fully know. Imagine it says a place where everyone knows everything about you. You know everything about everyone. But you all know that you're utterly forgiven because of what that lamb did on the cross in taking sin in your place. Imagine a place where you don't have to hide anymore, where you don't have to doubt anymore, where you don't have to pretend anymore, where everything's forgiven. Imagine a place like that, where you're free. Why are you free? Because you've been through and past judgment and discovered forgiveness. Imagine a place where it's not pretending anymore. Imagine heaven. (laughs) Jesus looks at the man and says, you're forgiven. You've sinned, but you're forgiven. Does he correlate sickness to sinfulness? It's actually ambiguous in here. And if you look in the study notes, you'll uh, discover the suggestions. Look through the scriptures for yourself to find cases where sin leads to sickness and many cases where it's just totally unrelated as well. It says in 1 Corinthians again that some of you have got sick because you've taken communion in an unworthy manner. (laughs) If you smoke like a chimney... You may expect to get lung cancer at some stage in your life. 
If you drink excessively, you can expect that your liver will fail at some point. If you get in a fight, well, expect your nose to get broken. (laughs) Sometimes sin leads directly to sickness. And sometimes it's just utterly random in a world where things have got terribly out of kilter because we've rebelled against God. Whichever one is in view in this particular case, Jesus wants him to know that he can be utterly known and utterly forgiven. And that's his biggest need. He's intolerant and judgmental (laughs) of sin. And people really get knocked by this, don't they? They look at Jesus and they go, how on earth dare you say these things? How on earth dare you say these things? On what authority basis do you say these things? And he says, well, let me show you my authority. And he says, son, stand up and walk. And the lad gets up and walks. Forty years he's been lying there. Forty years. Forty years. Get up and walk. And up he gets and walks. This is Jesus. Powerful. Authoritative. Unscientific. Intolerant. Should we let him into our schools? (laughs) It's dangerous, isn't it? He doesn't fit well in an RE curriculum that says, look, here's a Buddha, here's a prophet still to come, here's a humanist philosophy, and let's do a pick and mix around which ones we like the most today. (laughs) Choose what you like. He sort of stands out like an annoying relative (laughs) among those. He goes, actually, it's all about me. It's all about me. I've got power over nature. I've got power over sin. I've got power over sickness. And I can forgive you. He's a hard one to put among the others, isn't he? Because who else ever claimed those things? Powerful, authoritative, extraordinary saviour of the world. So wherever you are today, don't allow Jesus to be diminished by other people's opinions of who he is. Have a look into the scriptures for yourself. Who does he claim to be? And if he claims to be those things, who might he be claiming to be in your life today? Is he sleeping next to you in a boat? saying, why don't you just calm down? (laughs) I've got this storm covered. (laughs) Is he rebuking a storm? Is he bringing healing to some part of you that he doesn't want to just tolerate, actually? Is he saying, I'm here to forgive your sins? May God bless you as you discern for yourselves what he would say to you today. In Jesus' name.